the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. Well, my view is that every vote matters. And the way we can make that happen... is that we can have national voting, and that means get rid of the Electoral College and everybody. Everybody. That's Senator Elizabeth Warren at a recent appearance in Jackson, Mississippi. She's an advocate for abolishing the Electoral College and replacing it with a national popular vote. Seems like a niche issue, doesn't it? But she's not the only one. Here's Mayor Pete Buttigieg on CBS. Well, first of all, we've got to repair our democracy. The Electoral College needs to go because it's made our society less and less democratic. And how about Senator Kamala Harris on Jimmy Kimmel? Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, had a town hall last night, and she said that she thinks we should do away with the Electoral College. Is that? Do you agree with that? I think that it's. I'm open to the discussion. I mean, there's no question that... Um, the popular vote has been diminished in terms of making the final decision about who's the president of the United States, and we need to deal with that. Senator Cory Booker is in. I believe very simply that in presidential elections, the person with the most votes should be the president of the United States. Here's Beto O'Rourke agreeing with Senator Warren. I think there's there's a lot to that um, because you had an election in 2016 where the loser got three million more votes than the victor. It puts some states out of play altogether. They don't feel like their votes really count. So if if we really want every person to vote and give them every reason to vote, we got to make sure their their votes count and go to the candidate of of their choosing. So I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And rounding us out, here's Bernie Sanders after Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016. Do you think the Electoral College system should be reexamined? I do. I'll tell you why. I mean, on the surface, you just said it. Uh, We have one candidate who got two million more votes than the other candidate, but she is not going to be sworn in as, as president. And I think on the surface, that's a little bit weird. You've just heard several prominent leaders on the left. All of them have issues with the Electoral College. But why now? Why not spend time talking about the debt that is spiraling out of control or reforming our unsustainable entitlement programs? Or how about focusing on filling the over 7 million open jobs in America? Is it purely political? Is it a fundraising tool? It seems like we've done pretty well as a nation with the Electoral College in place. So what would be the consequences of changing to a national popular vote, as the left is advocating for? You'd have states that would be disaffected. There'd be whole swaths of the country that would feel as though their interests, their culture, wasn't being uh, 
respected at all and that they didn't have a voice, a real voice, in selecting the president. And of course, in a way, they'd be right. Dr. John York is a policy analyst in the Simon Center for Principles and Politics here at the Heritage Foundation. He recently wrote a piece analyzing the consequences of abolishing the Electoral College. This week, he explains. John, lay the foundation for me here. And I'm going to do a two-part question. And we're going to start at the basics. What is the difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College? And are there any glaring misconceptions in defining these two that we should clear up before moving on? Yeah, sure. The Electoral College is, as you know, the system by which we've elected all our presidents since the time of the founding. And it's pretty distinct from a popular vote. So basically, there's a popular vote in each state, and then the winner of that state takes all of the electoral college delegates that that state has assigned. And number of electoral college delegates is equal to the number of House of Representatives and number of senators from that state. So every state has at least three, but larger states have more. I I should correct that there are two states, Maine and Nebraska, that split their delegates. So, uh, you know, if you get a majority, you'll still get the lion's share, but but if you don't win the state, you can still get uh, a few delegates in those two states, but only those two states. Everywhere else, they send all of the electoral college delegates behind the winner of of their state's popular vote. Whereas in a national popular vote, you'd have the winner of 50 percent plus one of the, the voters throughout the country uh, winning the presidency. What about common misconceptions? Yeah, you always hear, well, every vote doesn't count. The left will say this constantly. Uh, you know, we need a national popular vote so every vote counts. Well, it is true that if you're in Wyoming, you know, your share of the Electoral College is greater than that uh, population's, uh, Wyoming's share of the population. That's true enough. So Wyoming does get a little bit of a boost, whereas California, uh, your vote doesn't count for quite as much. But it's completely false that every state is equal or that, that more populous states don't have uh, more influence. Of course they do. California has 55 electoral votes to Wyoming's three or North Dakota's three. New York similarly, 31. Texas, 34. So just like Congress, um, the compromise we made is that large states get the bulk of representation through the House of Representatives. Their greater share of the population accounts for something. So, John, why don't we get into a little bit of the the framers' original intent in establishing the Electoral College over a popular vote? You said compromise, and so uh, what was what was that compromise? Well, a big part of the compromise was between large states and small states, as we just discussed. Large states certainly wanted um, to have more influence over the direction of the country, owing to their greater share of the population. Makes sense. Whereas small states didn't want to get rolled over by the large states and have no influence. So uh, just like in Congress, where you have a House of Representatives where bigger uh, a bigger share of the House goes to states with larger populations and the Senate where every state is equal. Well, the Electoral College um, works by similar logic uh, since you know, your congressional delegation is equal to your number of Electoral College delegates. Another thing the founders hoped was it never really came to be. 
they hoped the Electoral College would sort of be the auspicious people from each state sort of selected to choose the next first man of the nation, the next George Washington. Uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a next George Washington. There, was, <laughs> there, there wasn't an undisputed next first man of the country. And, and then we, we got into the party system and then parties began, like they do now, selecting people who were pledged behind uh, the party's nominee. And that's the system we have now. So, so much this all revolves around population, you know, one voice, one vote kind of a thing. Um, but other than protecting smaller states from not having a voice, smaller states have industries and functions that oh, outweigh yeah. measurement uh, of population, for sure. you know, like agriculture, for oh, instance. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the founders knew that with a country this huge and diverse, you're going to have different um, industries in different um, religions, different cultures, kind of adhering in each different of the states. And with a country the size of a continent, it's really important to have geographical representation. There are plenty of countries that have a popular vote, but by and large, they're smaller and more homogeneous. So in a country like this, with a great deal of geographic um, diversity, where you know you have Arkansas and Alabama and Oregon and New York, all of which are in the same country, but all of which are very different. Uh, you certainly wouldn't want a situation where New York or California um, or Chicago are governing for all of these other places in quote unquote flyover country. How long are those places going to be safely flown over? <laughs> they're not going to put up with that forever. The founders knew knew that um, knew that that would be the case. In your recent piece, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, you reference Elizabeth Warren's latest push um, as she's been out on the oh, campaign yeah. trail. Um, you said presidential candidates likely would travel to places such as Massachusetts and California if the Electoral College were replaced by a nationwide popular vote. These states and the cities therein have enormous shares of the population. But would candidates travel to Jackson, Mississippi, where... She issued her proposal. Probably not. And would they take a swing through the Rust Belt, the Corn Belt, or the Bible Belt? Not a chance. Why not? (laughs) Well, there's no situation, there's no possible um, electoral system that would would promote candidates visiting all of the 4,000 counties around the country. There's no way. They have a finite amount of time. They have a finite amount of staff and money. So they have to make strategic choices. So you have to think, what are the strategic choices you're going to make if you had a national popular vote? Well, you're going to travel to the population centers where the majority of the population is. That's where you get your biggest bang for your buck. So you're not going to go to a rural or small town in Mississippi. That would be an enormous waste of your time and resources if what you're trying to do is, is get the most number of ears and eyes looking at your candidacy. Now, the system we have now, it's true that swing states get more attention than other states. And there's nothing God-ordained about Ohio or, or Wisconsin or Florida. Those states, by all rights, should have the same, should probably get the same amount of attention as anywhere else and no more. However, the great thing about swing states is they shift from election to election. Right. It's not Ohio every time. California used to be a swing state. Virginia Used to be a swing state. I think it's more blue now than anything. <laughs> Michigan didn't used to be. 
So uh, whereas the population centers shift a lot more slowly, New York City has been the most populous city for a long, long time in Los Angeles and Chicago. They'd be determining elections year over year, decade over decade. The other thing that's really great about swing states is they have a great diversity of regions. You have urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas, and every vote counts so much in a place like Ohio or Florida that you have candidates traveling around really to everywhere in a state. And so they might not visit Pascagoula, Mississippi, or think about how things play in Peoria, Illinois, but they're going to go to Pensacola, Florida, and Pinconning, Michigan. And that's sort of visits by proxy, I guess. Those places aren't exactly the same, but they're similar enough. They're a lot more similar than New York City is to to Pascagoula. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Many national popular vote advocates on the right actually say that we shouldn't worry about big cities because we'll increase our turnout in bright red states like Oklahoma, Alabama, and Tennessee. Um, and that increase is going to make up for the quote-unquote big city advantage that the left has. Where where are they off on this? That's pretty much flatly wrong. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and say, well, you know, there might be some truth to it. But Connecticut, deep blue, never really in jeopardy uh, in 2016, of jeopardy of turning to the Republican um, side. Uh, 65% voter turnout. That's in 2016. Hmm. Uh, Ohio, hotly contested, 64% voter turnout. 57% in New York, 58% in California, 60% in D.C. That's these, about These average. are in presidential this years? This is in the 2016 election. Okay. Yeah. So in those places, we're never in jeopardy, and they voted, it came out about the same rate as the rest of the country, just okay. about the same. People don't vote because they really think their one vote is going to be determinative, even in states where it might be, like Florida. They basically come out of a sense of civic duty, and because they, they want to feel good about voting for a candidate they agree with. So it's just not the case that voter turnout goes up in swing states vice other states. And I don't think it would be the case that voter turnout would go up if you had a popular vote. John, you've established a very good reason to keep the Electoral College around, yet they keep pushing to abolish. It it doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think they disagree with that reason. I mean, if you look at the left, um, they're... The last in the last five elections, let's put it very simply, and in, in the crassest, most pragmatic terms from their perspective, the last five elections they have won the national popular vote twice, and lost the electoral college, um, both in 2016 and then also Gore, who lost to Bush. So they look and they say, "Well, gosh, we're more popular in the country at large, but because we're becoming more and more of a regional party, our prospects look." dimmer than they should. Uh, so from a pragmatic perspective, yeah, they would love to change the Constitution. The founders were in a wonderful position. This was before largely parties. Of course, there were still factions and stuff like that, but they didn't have parties. So th- they weren't making partisan decisions when they shaped our institutions. They were making decisions based on various interests, sure, slave state, free state, large state, small state, um, mercantile interests or rural interests. Sure, all of those things were at play. But party interests, that would govern the day if we were, you know, that covers the day for people who are looking at constitutional amendments. This, packing the Supreme Court, all these various changes that Democrats are proposing on the, the campaign trail, well, predictably help Democrats, would predictably help Democrats going forward. I want to get back to basics and have a little fun here. Could you speak... On behalf of our founding fathers, <laughs> if they were alive today, 
what would be their greatest criticism of abandoning the Electoral College? I think they'd see the danger very clearly, that you'd have states that would be disaffected. There'd be whole swaths of the country that would feel as though their interests, their culture, wasn't being uh, respected at all, and that they didn't have a voice, a real voice, in selecting the president. And of course, in a way, they'd be right. If we got rid of the Electoral College and had uh, a national popular vote, presidents would be simply flying over, quote-unquote, flyover country, on their way to L.A. and New York and Chicago. And by the way, these are, the, these are places that uh, already get an outsized amount of attention. People, you know, Elizabeth Warren said this. She's, oh, you know, presidential candidates don't visit places like Massachusetts. Nonsense. They visit places like Massachusetts all the time. Especially for private fundraisers. That's exactly what I was going to say. For private, Hillary Clinton made 70 fundraising trips to California. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had their headquarters where? Not in Ohio, in New York City. So these places, owing to the amount of money that's there and owing to the amount of interest and, you know, et cetera, are always going to have a great deal of of influence in the country to say well, the claim of people that support a national popular vote, I guess, is that California and New York should have an even greater uh, amount of control over the country. And that places like lowly Ohio, not Ohio, I went to college in Ohio, but places like Ohio and <laughs> New Hampshire Ohio. And stuff, <laughs> are, are somehow dominating our nation's character in, in, uh, in elections. It's lunacy. Well, you and I have both lived in Ohio, but we're originally from Michigan, so we, we have that common bond. Right. So uh, I wanted to thank you, fellow Michigander, for coming <laughs> in today uh, and being on the podcast, and uh, really appreciate your perspective. My pleasure. It's good to be here. And thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Heritage Explains. Check the show notes for links to the articles referenced in this episode, and also, please don't forget to rate us and leave us a comment. Michelle is up next week. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it going by visiting www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift.